Uh, today we begin a new sermon series that I'm calling What Disciples Do. When we think about discipleship, when we think about faith, oftentimes we think about what we believe. And yet, discipleship and faith is more than just about what we believe. It's also about what we do when we claim to be disciples or followers of Jesus. And so over the next eight weeks or so, we're going to be looking at some of the lectionary passages of Scripture, and we're going to be looking at uh, and exploring what disciples do. And today's passage of Scripture comes from this text in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 35, and the title of the sermon is, Disciples Take Faith Seriously. Disciples Take Faith Seriously. Now, in 1824, Jean-Francois Gravelet, that is Giles County French, in case you're wondering, Jean-Francois Gravelet was born. And he was born in France, and when he was three years old, his family took him to the circus for the first time. And when they took Jean-Francois to the circus for the first time, he became fascinated with tightrope walkers. And as children are often prone to do, they, this little boy looked at his parents and said, I want to be a tightrope walker when I grow up. And so when this boy got home from the circus, he found some of his father's sturdier fishing rods, his fishing poles, and he placed those fishing poles over two chairs suspended in air, and he began to try to walk across those fishing poles just like he'd seen those tightrope walkers in the circus do. And he was pretty good at it. In fact, his parents recognized that, okay, this kid actually does a pretty good job of walking across those fishing poles. He was so good at it that when he was five years old, his parents decided, since he was still really interested in it, that they would pay for him to go to acrobat school in France. And so he began to attend this school where they actually taught you how to tightrope, among other things. And this kid was good even to those uh, people. He was so good at tightroping that they began to call him the little wonder. But if you're in the circus, you got to have a good stage name. So they started calling him Blondine because he had blonde hair. And quickly he became known as the Blondine Boy Wonder. And he began to travel all over France as a part of this group of acrobats, tightrope walking, even as a child. Well, in the 1850s, he's in his mid-20s by this point, this circus decides to come to America. And one of the places where the circus comes to America is in New York. And when Blondine the Boy Wonder lays eyes on Niagara Falls for the very first time, he decides, I'm going to be the first person to walk across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Well, you might 
find it surprising, but um, there are no ropes that long back in this day. So it took this guy several months to raise the money in order to be able to have a rope made that was 1,000 feet long and three inches wide. When he finally got the money for this rope and he got the rope, he began to contact the newspapers and tell them what he was going to do. He was going to be the first person to walk across the tightrope over Niagara Falls and they thought he had lost his mind. Uh, they, they, they could not believe that he was even going to try it. So he had to end up doing his own advertising. He began to make flyers and posters and putting them up wherever he could. He began to sell tickets for 25 cents apiece. And on the day that he had set aside as the day he was going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, thousands of people showed up. And he stood in front of the gathered assembly and he says, how many of you believe that I can walk across that tightrope from one side of Niagara Falls to the other? And according to the reports for the day, only about 10% of the people that were there thought he could actually do it. Everybody else was there to just watch this guy fall <laughs> or to mock him or to call him crazy for even trying it. But Blondine, the boy wonder, got up onto that tightrope, walked all the way across Niagara Falls and all the way back successfully. And he said, how many of you believe I can walk across Niagara Falls now? And everybody said, we believe, we believe. And so he did this for a long time, but then he began to realize that he's going to have to up his game a little bit if he wanted the crowd to keep coming. And so he said, how many of you believe that I can walk across this tightrope on stilts? And they said, uh, we believe. <laughs> and he did it. He walked across on stilts all the way across, all the way back. So he had to come up with something better. He said, how many of you believe that I can actually walk out to the middle point on this tightrope cook an omelet on a stove, and then lower the omelet down below to the made-of-the-mist boats that are circling around underneath and have somebody eat that omelet on the boat. Uh, we believe? He did it. So then the next thing he decided to say to up the game a little bit is, how many of you believe I can actually push a wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls on this tightrope. And everybody said, we believe you can do that. We believe it. We've seen enough now. We believe. And he says, uh, how many of you believe I can push a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls with somebody in the wheelbarrow? They said, we believe you can do it, man. We, we've seen you. We believe, we believe, we believe. And he said, okay, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? All of a sudden, <laughs> it was silence. You see, it's one thing to say we believe something. It's something else entirely to live like we believe, to take action on what we say we believe. Somebody, interestingly enough, actually did step forward that day and said that they believed he could do it, it was Blondine's manager. 
He'd been around him for a long time, followed him everywhere, seen what he was capable of doing, and said, I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. And, interestingly enough, successfully made it across. Amazing. I think that's what our scripture lesson is really getting at today in uh, our text. Jesus is trying to help these people know that you have to take faith seriously. In much the same way that Blondine had attracted this huge crowd of people on the side of Niagara Falls, Jesus is beginning to attract larger and larger and larger crowds around him. And no doubt some of those people there actually believed everything that Jesus was saying and everything that Jesus was doing, but I bet you there were some folks there that were just like Blondine's audience on that first time when he tried it that really weren't sure about all of this. They were there more just to kind of see what was going on. Maybe they were there to mock Jesus. Maybe they were there to, to say there's no way that you can pull this off. And when Jesus saw this large crowd of people there, he wanted to make sure that, that saying you believe, just following me around everywhere I go, that, that may not indicate that you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is trying to make the point that it's one thing to say you believe. It's another thing to live as if you believe. And so to make his point, as Lewis was sharing with the children, the first thing that he says is that you cannot be a disciple unless you hate your family. Now there's probably someone within the sound of my voice this morning that says, well, hallelujah, I know I'm a disciple now because I can't stand my family. But isn't it a weird thing that Jesus would say that? I mean, Jesus is the personification, uh, the embodiment of love. Why would he say that you need to push away those people that we are usually most inclined to embrace? Does Jesus not remember the, one of the great Ten Commandments that said, honor your mother and father? Does Jesus not remember that he himself said that all of the commandments could be summed up into loving God and loving the people that God loves? Is Jesus trying to say that it is impossible to love both God and family? Is Jesus trying to say that there really isn't enough love to go around. Well, scholars have been trying to make sense of this saying of Jesus ever since he said it. What, what does he mean that if you don't hate your family that you cannot be one of my disciples? And one of the ways that the, the scholars have tried to understand this verse of Scripture is to say that the word that is translated hate there doesn't mean uh, for Jesus what it means for us. The biblical scholars say that the word that's translated hate in our passage of Scripture means to turn away from, not to loathe, not to dislike. 
And so if that's exactly what Jesus was trying to say, then the scholars conclude what he really was going for here is he's saying that sometimes there's going to be competing loyalties in your life. Sometimes you're going to have two things that are deserving of your attention, but you can't give the attention to both that they deserve. And so you have to have some way in that moment of competing loyalties to prioritize what's going to be more important. And so Jesus is saying that there may come a time when you have competing loyalties and in such a case, the demand for discipleship should take priority over everything else, even the most sacred of relationships. But it's still a really hard saying of Jesus. Well, maybe he'll follow that hard saying by giving us another easy one, you know, but he doesn't. Uh, the next thing that he says after that is he goes on and he says, if you aren't willing to suffer, then you can't be my disciple. Who really enjoys suffering? I mean, come on, Jesus, give us something a little easier here. You know, in, in, in these days, when, when the Romans wanted to execute someone, they often did it by crucifixion. And the, the execution was meant to be as humiliating as it was excruciating. And so uh, if you were going to be uh, executed by crucifixion, they wanted to humiliate you before they inflicted tremendous pain on you. So you would have to be stripped of all of your clothing where you'd have to walk through town completely naked. They would beat you within an inch of your life with whips and and these little spikes on leather straps, and, and, and then they would force you to take your cross and carry that implement of your execution to the crucifixion site. And so Jesus is saying that sometimes the demands of discipleship are so tough and so severe that you might even be subjected to intense suffering, tragedy, and loss. And if you're really serious about following me, if you're really serious about being a disciple, you have to be willing to even suffer. Hmm. Well, let's hope Jesus finally gets to something easier now. He does. Thanks be to God, He does. He finally gets to the points of two stories that we can easily uh, understand. And it's all about the cost of discipleship, that you need to consider the cost before you begin to embark on this life. And, and so one of the first things He talks about is that you shouldn't start to build a watchtower unless you've got enough money to finish the watchtower. Because there's nothing more embarrassing than to get halfway through building the watchtower and then all of a sudden you don't have enough money to finish it. And then he follows that up by talking about going to war. And if you're going to go to war with somebody, you better make sure that you have enough soldiers in order to finish what you started. Because if you don't, it is a bad thing. It is not a good look. It's not good optics if you start it and you're unable to finish it. This is something we can relate to. 
You know, when I started something as a child, my parents would say, if you start it, you're going to finish it. So if you started on the baseball team, you couldn't quit halfway through. If you started in the scouting program, you couldn't quit until you were finished with it. This makes sense to us. You can't, you got to consider the cost before you begin. Finally, Jesus comes back and says, you can't be my disciple until you give away all your possessions. Jesus, can't you end on a good note? Are, are you trying to say that now I have to give away every single bit of my possessions? Well, you know, if you've been reading Luke very closely at all, you should realize that this is not surprising. Luke doesn't like stuff. Luke it seems to think that stuff gets in the way of following Jesus. And so Luke is really takes a negative view of possessions all the way through the gospel. It shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, if you've been reading along, that he would say that you need to get rid of all your stuff in order to be a disciple. Because for Luke, stuff can really impede your ability to do what God wants you to do. But it's still hard, isn't it? It's like, if, if everybody gives away everything, who are they giving it to? Or if everybody gives away everything and then nobody has anything, how can that be good for anybody? And yet, that's what Jesus says. I think, as is true for much of what Jesus tells in parables, this is hyperbolic. It's Jesus' way of getting our attention. Jesus wants us to know that when we decide to follow Him, it's not always going to be easy. But if we take faith seriously, we have to be willing to do what it is that Jesus expects, what it is Jesus desires, what it is that Jesus demands if we really want to be disciples. It's not as easy as just saying, I believe. I believe. We have to be willing to live like we believe. We have to be willing to take our faith seriously.